Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor here at Trinity. Thank you for being a part of this week two as we officially launch this church. Uh, we're excited that you can be here. We are a church plant. A church plant means that uh, we don't have it all together. Church plant means there's going to be a lot of mistakes. Church plants mean that there's going to be a lot of open seats. We want there to be a lot of open seats so that we can begin to pray for those seats and that you might have the opportunity to bring people into a new church for the city and for this part of San Diego. So we're glad you're here. Each weekend, we're going to talk a little bit about who we are, then we'll jump into the series which we're initiating uh, as we launch this church. It's called Conversations with Jesus. We launched that series last week on Easter. It was a post-resurrection conversation. There are only a couple of them where Jesus is appearing to people post-resurrection. So we looked at a really beautiful conversation in Luke chapter 24 with the disciples whose hearts were weary, but who Jesus shows up. And so what we're going to do is actually go from the beginning of the, the end of the story to the very beginning and start working through Jesus's life in different ways. And there are really four different books that we're going to be looking through, especially if you're new to Christianity. The Bible is an overwhelming book. There are 66 books, but for this series, we're going to look at four of those books. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew today, as, you could, as was read for you. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are an opportunity for us to look into the life of Jesus from a first-hand account of people who knew him, loved him, and followed him. One of the things we want to say about our church today, and then I'm going to jump in with the message, is that we really want to be a church that loves well, that has our eyes open, is not simply focused on ourselves. And if you are aware, um, there are some things going on in our local community, especially in Poway and at the Temple Kabad that happened yesterday. You're probably well aware of that, uh, that there was a shooting, that somebody was killed, and that uh, there are others who are wounded, and there's a community who is suffering. There's a community who's scared. There's a community asking a lot of questions, and we are that community. 
This is our community. This is our city. Those are our friends, and we want to be a church that loves them, pays attention to them, prays for them, and then figures out how we can serve them. And so we're going to be in communication with you over the next week as our leadership team thinks about how we can love and serve that community, how we can come alongside of them. But we at least want to begin by praying together. So before I jump in, we thought we'd pray, and we'd pray specifically for what happened. We pray for the families, and we pray for that community. So I'm going to start like that today, all right? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you with heavy hearts. Lord, each of us, as we passed text messages around yesterday and we sent links to the story of what happened, we were shocked. How could this happen in our city, in our neighborhoods, to our friends, to my neighbor? Lord, we look at the senselessness of evil. And we don't understand it. We don't know why somebody would walk into a community with such vengeance and hate that they would take life. And their aim is to strike fear. And their aim is to prove that God is not good, that God is not real, that God does not care about this city or those people. But we know that is not true. We don't have an answer for why that happened, but we do have a suffering Savior. We do have one who has bled too. And so there's resource within Christianity to understand suffering. And we are a community of hope. We also want to be a community of action. And so we pray that you would give us the opportunity to love and serve the real needs in real time of our friends across the highway and Poway. Lord, we pray for Temple Kabod. We pray for the members of that community. They are reeling and they are trying to put the pieces back together. And we pray that you would breathe hope into their lives. For those who have lost that loved one, I pray that you would be with them, especially close and especially near. For those who are wounded, would you bring quick care? And for the entire community of Poway and those surrounding, would we actively love? Would your presence do more than we can ask? And we know that evil will not win the day because you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In this series entitled Conversations with Jesus, um, we're at a unique place in the story. And essentially, Jesus is about to change the whole world. And the devil creeps in right before Jesus' public ministry is initiated, and he tries to derail it before it even begins. There are two episodes that we're going to look at together, briefly the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to look at a unique conversation with Jesus. Most of the ones that we're going to look at over the next few weeks are conversations between individuals and Jesus or groups of people and Jesus. This is a very unique conversation between the devil and Jesus, right as he's about to go public, right as he's about to literally change the world. The devil says, if I can get him now, then it'll be a lot easier later. And so we want to pay attention to the dynamics of this unique conversation. Before we jump in, I want to give just a couple of comments on the reality of evil and on the reality of the devil. And then I'm going to go into this story. Two comments. One commentator puts it like this. He says, the Bible says that evil is more multidimensional, nuanced, and complex than the sciences alone can suggest. The Bible maintains in addition to systemic injustices and personal ignorance and physiological imbalances There really are forces of spiritual evil in the world, and behind them all, there is a singular supernatural intelligence. The reality of evil 
and the reality of God's enemy, the devil, Satan, or as this passage, as he's going to be referenced as the tempter. The Bible teaches us that there is a complexity to evil that can't be explained through the simple accumulation of wrong choices and bad behavior. Think about that. Evil is bigger than the accumulation of all of the wrong choices in the world. Now, if you're a skeptic, you're kind of leaning into Christianity. Maybe you say, this is the reason that I don't like Christians. This is the reason that I don't like the Christian narrative. Because the Christians are the ones who are always walking around and saying, hey, the devil made me do it. Right? We're the type of people who blame everything on the devil. The reality is that's not true and that's not biblical. The biblical understanding of evil is that it's more nuanced, more multidimensional, but it gives voice to the complexity of what's happening. And it says that what happens in culture, what happens in Poway, all of these things that we see is more nuanced and more sinister than just the accumulation of all of our wrong choices. That there is a personal force behind it all. He has a personality. He has a name. The Bible references him as the devil or Satan. And the reality is, if God is real, why couldn't his enemy be real? And the way in which we understand the scripture is we look into it to understand what do they teach us about the complexities of society, the complexities of evil, systemic injustices, personal responsibility. The Bible doesn't undermine personal responsibility, so we can walk around and say, the devil made me do it. But it doesn't want you to be naive to the reality of a personal force that wants to derail God, crush you, crush everything that God loves, and everything that is good, true, and beautiful. The Bible speaks about those things. Secondly, Jesus speaks about those things. And if we believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God, then either we can say that his whole life is a metaphor, and he's having conversations in this case, really with nobody or some image or some systemic force. We want to say that actually because of Jesus, we interpret things the way he does, the way in which the Bible does. And so we're coming to an understanding that, yes, human beings have personal responsibility, and we can all make a good choice or a bad one, but there's something driving all of it, and it's bigger than us, and it's got a name, and it's got a source, and it's personal. But let me say this before I jump into the text. The devil is not God's equal, not even close. The devil is not God's equal. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-seeing. He is a created being who wanted to be like God, and then he fell away from God. And what the devil is doing is he's leading this force of angelic uh, angels who have also fallen. We don't fully understand it, but the Bible helps us to make sense of it, that they are warring against the forces of good, namely with Jesus as the general, and they want to end him, and they want to end you, Right? This is what the Bible teaches. We could go much deeper, but this is what's kind of undergirding the Christian understanding of this unique conversation. So let me jump in as Jesus has a conversation with the devil as he's about to go public and change the world. Look with me at Matthew 3, 16. I'm going to read a couple of verses there. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me stop there. The three points I'm going to walk you through. Number one, temptation and its nature. This is what I'm about to walk you through, point one. Secondly, temptation and its effects. And then thirdly, temptation and its remedy. So first, temptation and its nature. 
Our text, this first portion that I just read for you from verse 16, really begins with one of the most profound I love yous in the history of the world. That's what's going on in Jesus' baptism. It's one of the most profound I love yous in the history of the world. You ever met somebody who's a newlywed or has got a new baby? My brother just had a new baby, right? You meet somebody who is in love and there is a profound sense of identity. There's a profound sense of confidence. You ever meet that, that young man who's just said, I do and I love you to his bride? What does it feel like? Right? A profound sense of confidence. I know who I am. I know that I am loved. They have professed their affection for me. And that's exactly what's happening as Jesus is baptized. That the heavenly father sees his son and he says to his son, I love you. And as Jesus hears those words, you know he has to be saying to himself, it's been 30 years. It's been 30 years. He spent eternity with God. He becomes an incarnate baby 30 years. And his father speaks to him and says, son, I'm still with you. I love you. I delight in you. I'm still your father. You are still my beloved son. And as Jesus is being sent to announce the kingdom of God and to save the world, the Father shows up to encourage the faithfulness and to establish the identity of his one and only Son. And you might expect a feast. You might expect this kind of heavenly celebration. But what we find that follows this watery announcement is almost the exact opposite. Look at verse 1. After this profound I love you, we read, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. We're told that the Spirit of God led the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted. And after 40 days, Jesus is really hungry. I don't think I've gone four hours. I mean, 40 days? This is the limit of human experience. After 40 days in the wilderness, he's really hungry because like you and me, he's really human. And we're introduced to the devil who is referenced in verse 3. Glance there. He's referenced for the first time as the tempter who's there to ruin and destroy the life and the work of Jesus before it even begins. He's thinking to himself, now's my moment. He's about to go public. Let's get him now. The Greek noun, diabolos, which I think we have on the screen. The Greek noun, diabolos, is the most frequently used word in the New Testament for the devil. And the word has as its root the Greek verb diabolain, which means to split. And see, as you start to understand, oh, not just the tempter is on the scene, but the splitter is on the scene. And from the very first words out of the mouth of the devil, you get an eyeful of his agenda, which is to split Jesus. He's there to separate him. He wants nothing more and nothing less than to propel Jesus onto a distinct and separate track from his father. He wants to derail the mission of God right here and right now. And how does the devil aim to accomplish it? Well, he does it through the lever of doubt. Does it through the lever of doubt. He does it through lies which, gets pl which get planted in our minds and then become rooted in our hearts. Look at how this conversation begins with verse 4. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. He essentially says to Jesus, all right, Jesus, 
I saw what happened back there at the Jordan. I heard the voice from your distant heavenly father kind of creep in and say, hey, I love you, son. Well, if he loves you so much and he finds you so lovely, why are you all alone in the desert? Why do you have nothing to eat? I mean, if you are the cosmic heavenly son of God, why are you out here all alone suffering? What kind of heavenly father would send you here? Why are you so hungry? See, he just starts to insinuate certain things about the character of his father. He starts to malign. He starts to defame. He starts to creep in these sinister intonations about the reality of who the father really is. The devil tempts Jesus to abandon his faith in his father. If you were God's son, why are you in the desert and not the palace? And the reality is, friends, that the tempter, in the same way that he comes after Jesus to split, separate, and derail him, he's coming after you. He's coming after me. This is his nature. This is who he is. This is what he wants to accomplish in the world. The tempter comes after your heart in the same way and with the same lies. And he says things like, if God is so good, then why are you still alone? I mean, if God is so gracious, why haven't you found satisfaction in friendships? Why don't you have a job that you love? Why are you still waiting? Why are you still recovering? I mean, if God is so great and so good, then why are all these things that don't feel good or great at all happening to you? And he starts to insinuate, yeah. Yeah, why are those things happening? Why am I alone? Why did this happen? Why am I suffering? Why am I waiting? Why don't I have enough money? Why did my children turn their backs on me? All the sorts of things that are real in your life, why are those things happening? The devil's intention is to split and to divide your affections. To my non-Christian friends in the room for a moment, let me say this to you. The Christian, the enemy at the center of the Christian story wants to keep you from recognizing the truth of who God is. He wants you to find God implausible, unthinkable, unfashionable, outdated, naive, antiquated, and foolish. He does not want you to see the reality of this God's character. He wants you to look at caricatures of who this God is. He wants you to look more closely at the pain in your life than the one who can forgive and heal the pain in your life. He doesn't want you to know who God really is. He wants you to think how foolish of a modern person to believe in God and to believe in a devil. Right? He wants to keep your focus on the things that aren't going well at all and to demean the character of God, and to undermine the possibility of faith. But the reality is, even as progressive ideas come into culture, even as all of these values are flying at us, there has been no cultural storyline that's been able to make sense of the human heart. The devil keeps failing, but guess what? The devil keeps trying. The devil wanted to crush, split, and divide Jesus, and I assure you that his intentions are the same for you and for me. Before I go to the next point, let me just talk briefly about each of the three temptations and just a note about each of them. When the devil shows up at the end of 40 days of fasting, he attacks Jesus at his point of weakness. You notice that? He takes a cheap shot. 40 days of fasting, he comes into Jesus and says to him, oh, so your father's real good, huh? Well, would a good father lead his son into the desert to be really hungry? Turn these stones into bread. See, but Jesus didn't cave, and the reason he didn't cave is because he knew that turning stones into bread had nothing to do with his sonship. 
nothing. And for that matter, neither did his hunger. His hunger and turning stones into bread had nothing to do with his sonship. His father had spoken to him, you are my beloved son. And for Jesus, that was enough. Temptation one passes him by. The second temptation attacks Jesus at his point of strength. It's interesting because Jesus replies to the devil after the first confrontation. He replies with what? His own ideas? Or does he reply with Scripture? All right, so he uses Scripture to confront. And so the devil in temptation too, he goes, oh, okay, you're a man of God. You're God's own son. You know the word pretty well. So do I. The Scriptures promise that if you fall, God will pick you up. Do you believe the word? Go ahead and jump. Cheap spirituality. Right? And Jesus confronts him in part two. And then the third temptation targets Jesus' profound love for the world. Because the reason Jesus was sent was to save the world, and the devil knew it. And so in temptation three, he tempts Jesus to love his work more than his father. How committed are you, Jesus? If you're here to save, you can have it all. Just bow one knee to me and it can all be yours. What kind of a heavenly father would have you die for the world anyway? You can have it right here, right now. Just bow the knee to me. And each time, he confronts the devil with the profound nature of the word and he sends him out. Each temptation was a manipulation of the truth, an attempt to split him apart. Because that's his nature. So secondly, let's look at its effects, temptation and its effects. We live uh, just north of here in the Lake Hodges area, right by the lake. And uh, my oldest son, Mason, who I'd love to introduce to you as we become a family, I'd love for you to know my family. My wife's name is Danielle. We have three children. Mason is my oldest. He's nine years old. Recently, I've been able to take Mason mountain bike riding along the trail system. And um, I've gotten a bike, and we've been able to go. And, and when we ride, what I've noticed is sometimes I'm out front, I'm leading the way, and sometimes I let the little nine-year-old out front, and he leads the way. But uh, I'm, I'm still bigger and stronger, okay? And so because I'm the more experienced rider, I find that when I'm ahead, sometimes he doesn't quite catch up. And so I'll go a little bit around, and if you've ever been on the trail system around Lake Hodges, it's pretty curvy. And so as we're going around through some of the curves, as I get out ahead of him, if, I, if I, he loses sight of me for just a moment around the edge of that curve, I always hear his little voice say, hey, Dad, wait for me, right? Dad, don't leave me. And what I've said to Mason again and again is that, son, I just want you to know, as we ride, sometimes you're out front, sometimes I'm out front. When I'm out front, if you ever lose sight of me, I'll never leave you. See, but in that moment, when he can't see me up that hill or around that curve, he wonders if I've told the truth. And so every time I go around that curve, literally rode this week, as, he, as I went around each little curve, I heard him, Dad, wait for me. Dad, wait for me. Dad, wait for me. Because he wonders, is my dad truth? Is he truthful? Right? Will he really wait? Christianity teaches that God has made us with purpose, that, God, that, that there is a meaning to your life, 
that at the center of your life is the potential for something that is not going to be rocky, that there's the potential for you to understand who you are. There's the potential for you to understand your identity. There's the potential for you to step into the callings that God has given each of us with purpose and meaning and to serve the world, that you can give, you can have a joyful experience of who this God really is. You can actually make a contribution to the common good of people. You can love and you can serve. This is how God made you. But the reality is, through the temptations of life, the devil wants you to forget that. That when you go around the curves, when you go up those hills, that you're going to wonder, is my God telling the truth? The devil wants to split your heart so that other things become your ultimate concern. If God can't make good on his word, if he can't be trusted, if he can't make me happy, then maybe something else will. And temptation creeps in and we separate from God, but because he's made us to be whole, he's made us to be complete, we inevitably knit ourselves to other people and other things, and we wrongly assume that they can provide meaning and success and significance. There's a book that I've been reading called uh, Breaking the Idols of Your Heart. How to Navigate the Temptations of Life. It's written by Dan Allender and Trimper Longman. I recommend it. I'm not going to read a quote, but I was looking through the table of contents, and I listed the table of contents for you so you could see what they wrote. Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, How to Navigate the Temptations of Life. Listen to the names of each of these seven chapters in their book. Chapter one, chasing after power, I can control my world. Chasing after relationships. Chapter two, relationships bring me fulfillment. Chapter three, chasing after work and money. Money brings me freedom. Chapter four, chasing after pleasure. Pleasure will satisfy me. Chapter five, chasing after wisdom. Knowledge will put me on top. Six, chasing after spirituality. My spiritual life will save me. And then the seventh, chasing after immortality. I will have a long life if I take care of my body. Which of those do you say to yourself, I got that one. Don't wrestle with it, mastered it, not even worried about it. Which of them, on the other hand, do you say, that's a weakness? That's an area in my life I need to pay attention to. I notice I do care about power, success, relationships, money, my body. I'm potentially preoccupied with those things. What are your areas of strength? Not an issue. What are your areas of weakness? And I want to assure you, the devil's coming for you in both areas. But that's where he attacked Jesus. At his point of strength, Right? You know the scripture? We'll go after cheap spirituality. Jump. He'll protect you. Your point of strength. He also goes after your weakness. He came after him after 40 days. And he was really hungry. You hungry? What type of father would leave you starving? Which of those stands out to you? Those are more of the modern idolatries. Those are the storylines that we are seeking to attach ourselves to. If God's not good, attach yourself to one of those. Because you were made to be whole. And what the human soul does is it understands wholeness and it attaches and it knits itself to something saying, make me whole again. I want that profound I love you. I need an understanding of who I am. I desire to have an identity. Knit yourself to something. And what the devil creeps in and essentially says to you is, I know money didn't work before. I know power didn't give you what you're looking for. I know that relationship didn't fulfill you. But try it. Anything but God, anything but him, try it again. Oh, it didn't work last time? This time it'll work, right? That's the nature of who he is, God's enemy. He's after you. He is the splitter. He is the tempter. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes was someone who had the opportunity to try them all. Power, love, sex, money, pleasure, wisdom, and knowledge. And his profound answer to it all was meaningless. Meaningless. And he was not saying that life has no purpose. What he is saying is that those things have no power to give me real meaning. And he understood that he had to look outside the sun. Right? He had to look to God himself. Jesus was tempted to separate from the Father. He was tempted to knit himself to comfort and cheap spirituality and power, but he didn't need to try them to know that, he, that they didn't work. So let me take you to this last part, temptation and its remedy. I can be quick here. Temptation and its remedy. I have mentioned this before, but the scriptures are the place where Jesus goes again and again and again to be able to combat the cultural moment and the cultural values. Let me just ask this question. Would you go there? Would you go there? How do you find truth? How would you combat the temptation to knit your life to power, success, money, relationship? Where would you find truth? It's one thing to understand, man, there's this big, thick thing called the Bible. How do I appropriate it? How do I think about it? What I talked about last week, and we're going to talk about consistently at Trinity, is that the scriptures are designed to amplify Jesus. They're about him. And so that if we can see him in the scripture, you can see the Old Testament pointing forward, you can see the New Testament as fulfillment, you can understand the big narrative of who God is, you might have a chance. If the Son of God, who had experienced fellowship with his Father forever, leans into the scripture when temptation comes, do you think maybe that could be a place we go? But we have to know it. Christianity is not a big list of principles and rules. It is about a person. And that is why we are starting this series called Conversations with Jesus, because we want you to know him before you understand the principles. They're, they're relational, friends. The principles of Christianity flow from a relationship with the living God. Jesus goes there to combat. But secondly, here's how one writer put it. Not only do we have the word of the Lord, but we have the Lord of the word. We've got Jesus himself. We've got the Lord of the word. In the very beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, we read of another very similar conversation. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Do you know this story? Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they had everything. They had a lush garden. Anything they wanted to eat, they could take it. They had companionship. They had marriage. They had full relationship with God. And the tempter creeps in in that story, whispers doubt about the character of God. They had every resource to be able to resist, and they cave. And in our story, we read of something very similar. The tempter creeps in, but Jesus is not in the garden, is he? Where is he? He's in the desert. He's got nothing. He doesn't have a companion to, to fill up his soul. He doesn't have anybody to lean into to help. He's completely alone. He, has, he doesn't have the lushness of the garden. He has fasted for 40 days, and the tempter creeps in and whispers the exact same thing, but he doesn't fail. He wins. And what he does is, is he resists for us what the original Adam, where he failed. And as we read these stories, the original reader would have been going, I know the original. They had everything, and they failed, and history followed in their footsteps. Everything has followed from the fall, and then you have the new Adam creep in, and you realize this isn't just about knowing the Word of God. It's about knowing the God of the Word. It's about Jesus. 
It's about his resistance. It's about his pushing against the temptation of the devil because he knew we wouldn't. He resisted the lies because he knew I'd fall prey. And he said, I want to save him. I want to love him. I want to renew them. And so he walks into the desert, not the garden, and he wins. We do not serve a weak God. We serve a God who is victorious, who is the king. He is the second Adam. We don't just lean into the scriptures. We lean into the king at the center of them. That's what Christianity hinges on. That's what it's all about. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the last quote. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He won in the desert, and he won on the cross. And he invites you to come into this conversation and to taste and see what the heartbeat of Christianity is really all about. No more being split. Come and find wholeness. Come and find grace and mercy in your time of need. Is that time today for you? It is for me. We won't be people who humbly say, oh, Lord, I have the sort of heart who knits itself to other things beside you. Come and change me. We can't change on our own, but we can change together, and we want to be that sort of church. So let's pray as we close to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of goodness, that you love us deeply. We ask that the profound I love you that was spoken over Jesus would also be spoken over us. There is an immense amount of confidence, head held high with a humble heart, when somebody says, I love you. When somebody says, I know you, I've seen you to the bottom, but you are loved to the core. And the tempter comes in and says, that's too good to be true. Don't believe it. Don't look at him. Don't read his word. Don't understand that he's the great hero. He wants us to believe it's about us, what we have to do to be lovable. But it's not. We pray that we would be a community that rallies around the gospel, that rallies one another towards it, that's quick to discern the voice of a personalized enemy who wants to come and crush, split, and separate. But may the voice of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through the gospel, would it change us? Would you renew my heart? Would you renew our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.